Okay, welcome to today's Letters of Tradition, the Tradition of Letters. Today we are learning and traveling from Rashi, who was living in, well, last week in Rambam. We, did a little bit, we deviated a little bit, but we were in uh, Rashi, Rashi living in France. We talked about how, again, the migration of Israel to Babylonia, Persia, that whole area. From there to Germany, from the uh, Gershom. Germany was the center. There were the three cities, the cities of Shum, abbreviated of Spires, Mines, and Worms. Anyone know Shapiro or Mintz? Probably from those cities. And then Rashi springs up in France. And once Rashi ends up in France, although he learned in Germany yeshivas, that kind of shifted the centers of Jewish life to France. And that's where everyone was going, because Rashi was there, Rashi's children were there, the Balitosos were there. That became the center of Jewish life. That's where the main yeshivas were. However, that did not mean there was an end, a cessation of Jewish life in Germany. The Maharami Rudenberg, Mayor Ben Baruch, 13th century, a product of worms, is born. And he becomes one of the most important figures in our, in our Ashkenazic tradition. I'm sorry, Nady. This one's not for you. <laughs> he becomes one of the most important and influential decisors of all, of, and left the most, probably one of the biggest marks on our halakhic system in Ashkenaz. Ryan Murtenberg was born in Worms to a rabbinic family. I believe somewhere he counts 13 members of our Masoru, of, of big rabbinim and Rosh Hashivas, or either his uncles, his cousins, his grandparents, he was just a tremendous, it come from a, a family, a very, very important, influential family. He was born in 1215. He died, which is 1215. Anyone knows what major event happened in the history of the world in 1215? Major event in the, in the world of, in the world of um, democracy. The Magna Carta was signed. He died in 1293. The 13th century was a century where the church was on ascendancy. It was kind of trying to figure out where exactly, what was its place, and it was in constant conflict, kind of this push, tug and pull with the monarchies, and trying to, again, figure out who's in charge, who's in control, which left the Jews, as always, in the middle of it. And Rabbi Rittenberg, he's, he's in Germany, he's the Talmud of some of the major, major Rabbanim, uh, just name a couple, the Arzurua, anyone here of the Arzurua, of Isga Vienna, a major, a major, major uh, posik, the, the Talmud of the Rabbi Yah, the Arzurah's son, Marach Arzurah, we'll see soon, wrote another work who recorded many of the Maharam's chuvas. And that's how we actually we have some of them. He then travels to France, which I think is very telling, because we're already seeing, instead of staying in Worms, he has to go to France, because that's where the major yeshivas are, where he started under many people, many people, which is significant, including the Rimi Paris, or Vichil of Paris. Rebichil of Paris is famous in the world history for something, a major event, a, a transformative event that happened in Ram's life. In 13, in, excuse me, in 1239 was the beginning of what we noted the disputation of, of the Talmud. Essentially, the Pope got wind, or was told, or decided, it's kind of unclear why exactly, that the Talmud was um, the reason why the Jews were not converting. And he decided that everyone should confiscate the Talmuds, and they should put the Talmuds on trial. And the only person who followed this was King Louis, the great and holy King Louis. King Louis the Great, who obviously was not very great for the Jews. King Louis confiscated the Talmud, essentially put it in escrow, and said, let's put this Talmud on trial. Talmud goes on trial, and they lodge about 35 complaints against the Talmud. The person who was the main 
I guess, prosecutor and one of the main uh, enforcers of and encouragers of this of this uh, trial was a man, Nicholas Dunn, who was not just a France, uh, Franciscan monk, but also a Talmud of Yechil of Paris. He apostatized. So he very likely may have learned in the same yeshiva as Rami Rittenberg. The Talmud goes on trial. They lodge 35 complaints against them. Among those complaints are the Talmud is displacing the Bible, which is a big no-no if you're a Christian. The Jews are no longer need the Bible. They just look at the Talmud. The Talmud is blasphemous. If you read the Talmud, just open it to Brachas, the very beginning, it talks about God in very anthropomorphic terms. Describing how God wakes up in the middle of the night and, and screams like a lion. Again, the, the Torah is full of it, but there, okay, we have we, we already have you know all sorts of you know, God has an outstretched arm. We have all sorts of explanations why that is. Well, suddenly the Talmud comes along and continues this trend. That was a big no-no. The, the Talmud is obscene. The Talmud talks about every single topic in the book, and the Talmud also another one big one was the Talmud is a polemic against Christianity, which isn't so wrong. The Talmud covers many many things. You can find anything in the Talmud, and occasionally the uh, you find the Talmud and Amorite will make certain derisive and, you know, comments against Christianity and against the Immaculate Conception and against one, one showed up in uh, Dafyomi just a couple weeks ago, uh, a week and a half ago, against Mary. So among those things, Tom was put in a trial and there was a real trial. Tom was sitting there in the, in the defendant's stand. There were witnesses called on both ends and obviously it was a rigged trial. It was already preordained that the Jews were not going to win it. And then 33 cartloads of Talmud were burned, which is the equivalent to the, I saw somewhere over 30,000 volumes. It was a tra traumatic event in the world of, in the world of the Jewish people. Jewish life in France never recovered. It was a center of life. Ron Rutenberg was there. He saw the whole thing. It was his Rebbe who was defending the Talmud, and he composed a kinnah, which you read till today, Shali Srufi Be'esh. Recognized the words all about this traumatic event. He then travels from there with many Jews who left to Rutenberg, where he lived out most of his life. As some sort of rabbi, perhaps chief rabbi, he was in Rutenberg. He answered many, many questions. A very interesting, uh, a very interesting answer. He was not someone, his, his emotion came through when he answered questions. There were times I was reading a tshuva, he was annoyed. He's like, you already asked me this question. Why are you asking to me again? Like, get over yourselves. Find a way to compromise and move on. I don't know what you're asking me. Uh, the tshuva we'll see today where he gets very emotional, very, very, very upset. He was a powerful, powerful figure in that, in that regard, but also his Talmudim, not only did they spread out throughout Bohemia, Austria, and Germany, his Talmudim become the Maharil, who we've discussed in a previous year, not this year, but a, a Tfilish year, who was one of the, again, reports all of the Haggah Ashkenaz, the Haggah Esmaimani, Esmaimani wrote a parish on the Rambam, essentially giving the Ashkenaz versions of the Rambam, the Mrach Arzerua, and most prominently, the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher. I mean, the Rush went through the entire Talmud and recorded all the halacha, and he's one of the main pillars that the Shulchan Aruch relies on and the Ramah rely on when it comes to writing the Shulchan Aruch. So here's a person now, by the, who, here's a person who left, leaves his indelible mark not only on the Shulchan Aruch through the Rush, and the, the Rush is someone with the Torah, who was again the precursor of the Shulchan Aruch, if you want to look at it that way, but also the Ramah heavily, heavily, heavily leaned on the Hagos Maimani, the Mordechai, another Talmud, the Arzurua to figure out what the halacha was. So, in a way, the Marutenberg left this mark on the Shulchan Aruch because whoever you are, whether you're Sephardi or Ashkenazi, and he kind of was the person that was taught them all. Uh, I wonder, perhaps, because he was someone who was in Worms, he was in Germany, he then traveled to France. His Rebbeim are run the gamut from the Ravya, the Arzurua, 
the Balitosvos, perhaps that's also one of the reasons why he had the authority. Because when he said, oh, this is the Minhag, yeah, Taka, that probably was the Minhag. Because he kind of knew what the Minhag was. He also, he, and again, a couple other things about it before we get, today, get into today's shear was, this was a time when the world at large was trying to figure out, again, as I mentioned, the balance, exactly how should communities be structured. It was a feudal system, a feudal system meaning that you were not a subject to the king, you were subject to the local leader. You paid your taxes to the local leader. The king may have had a, some sort of overall, overall understanding of what's going on, owned the land, but ultimately your primary, I guess, overlord was the local lord, was the local leader, not, and not the king. They were trying to figure, again, who has what to say, who can make decisions, where, where the church falls into all this. And the Marmee Rittenberg, Jewish communities are right in the middle of this. And he writes a lot about what does it mean to be part of a Jewish community? Who gets to say the Jewish community? Is it all top-down, that you have just the rabbi saying what to do? Or is there some sort of democratic system where there are votes? He was very much in favor, again, democratic system excluding of women and non-people don't own property, but he kind of said, when you have a community, so we take a vote and we figure out what are best, not when it comes to necessarily all halakhas, when it comes to more minhag in practice and how things should go. Now, that's obviously a very, a minefield because in a way, the halakha speaks to everything. So there's a wonderful and fascinating essay by Ravar Lichtenstein where he talks about this issue. How do you kind of navigate if halacha speaks to everything, but then what's the role of the layperson? But that's, that's right beyond this. So that was Rabbi Rutenberg and wrote a lot about how communities should be structured. And there are those who say, there are those historians who want to claim that because the Jews were more urbanized, when they kind of put forth their structure of governance, the local Christians, the local non-Jews, turned to the Jewish people and looked at their, their way of organizing communities and their way of governance, and they copied it which would mean that the Ram Rutenberg had a much larger influence on the broader Europe than just the Jewish communities. The Ram Rutenberg's life ended in tragedy. He, for some reason, again, there's a debate among the historians, he decided at a certain point that King Rudolf, the king, was, did something. Again, it's, it's a little unclear. He decided it was time to leave Rutenberg, leave Germany. He was living in Germany. He had a, a, room, a house that was 21 rooms. He was a very wealthy man. He did not take money for teaching. He had a a lot of business ventures, but in his house he had a yeshiva, he had a dormitory. He picked up his entire community and they proceeded to leave Germany. On the way out, he was in a certain city, I don't remember the name of the city, I can't pronounce the name of the city. He was recognized by an apostate who reported him to King, to, to, to king Frederick, who then took him and, and um, imprisoned him. And he was in prison for seven years before dying in jail. And then his body remained in custody until he was finally redeemed by an Alexander Winfrey, who we'll meet soon, who redeemed his body on the condition that he get buried next to the Moran Rutenberg. So if you look here, the first picture is a picture of the old cemetery in Worms, and one of those is a, the grave of the Moran Rutenberg, and the one next to that is the grave of this Alexander, who redeemed, who redeemed the Maharam. Why was he thrown in jail? It's very unclear. Some say because he was escaping, Another theory is because he actually, why was he leaving? Why did the Jews get up? Some say it was persecution, although there was persecution all the time. There were blood libels all the time. Others say, actually, what happened was that there was a big debate. What role do Jews have? Who owns the Jews? Who do they own allegiance to? And the king essentially said, they're going to pay taxes to me. Not to the local lord, which is against all precedent. Essentially saying, they're going to become my slaves. Which is, a double, which is again, the good side of it, now that they have the protection of the king, the bad side is, essentially he's breaking the What's the minhag of everyone day where you pay to your local lord? He's saying they're not my slaves. And Ryan Brooks refused to do that, so he picked up and left. Because that's just, he didn't want to be the slave of the king for good reason. 
What happened was the Jewish community offered to ransom the Maharani. <coughs> he was the king. He was the, the Gadol Hadar. They offered to ransom, and he refused to be. He refused the money. He said, "Because if you ransom me, that's going to set a precedent that all they're just going to start kidnapping rabbis and put them in jail, and ask and ask for exorbitant, outrageous ransom uh, monies to, to to redeem them." So he refused to be redeemed, and he said, don't redeem my body until Alexander came along and redeemed his body. Another theory is now that he would have been redeemed, but actually the king took the money and didn't redeem him, which just shows he was a bigger Russia than just being a Russia. Uh, but so that was Ramrugi, again, he ends up in jail. His time in jail was actually a very productive time for him because it wasn't just sitting in a pit, but they gave him a svarim. His students were allowed to meet him. You read sometimes the Chuba, the Maram, it says, when we went to visit the Maram in jail, he said the follows. And actually, that was when he organized a lot of his final works. He wrote a parish on the Tosvos. Excuse me. He wrote a Tosvos. Tosvos, again, were many different people. Once, a bunch of them on the Maram. He wrote many Shalas and Chubos. He wrote the Shalas Beige. He wrote these, uh, many, many works. What I want to discuss today is not any works particularly of the Maram, but this question of, are you allowed to redeem a captive? Pinyon Shvui. And in our scenario, are you allowed to redeem someone who ended up in jail for so long? And ultimately, the person who did redeem him, why did they do so? So here's, that's what I want to talk about today. Any questions, comments, observations? No? Anything? Feel free to ask. All right, yeah. The Rambam in Hilfus Matnos Anim, Matnos Anim is again, gives to the poor, writes as follows. When it comes time to allocating money, as we know when it comes to Zadaka, for those who heard Mishnah Yomi last week, I, I went on a bit of a rant about this, talking about the, um, who here listened to Mishnah Yomi? Raise your hand. All right, so you heard my, you heard my little rant about, my little rant about Zadaka, that when it comes to Zadaka, there's always a finite amount of money and an infinite amount of people who may need. So there has to be a hierarchy of not only who gets, but how do you allocate to which different causes. Pidyon Shvuyi in the redeeming of captives comes before feeding the anim and clothing them. The Einlacha mitzvah gadola ke Pidyon Shvuyi. There's no greater mitzvah than redeeming a captive. Shashvuyi harihu bechlala harayibin vatsameyim varumin. The omid besekonas nefashis. Because someone who's in jail, especially in the more primitive jails of yesteryear, they are hungry, they are thirsty, they are unclothed, and their lives are in constant danger. Therefore, it kind of hits on every single, every single note that we're trying to do here. If, if it, the whole idea of tzedakah is to help people get out of, uh, from their situations, well, here is someone who is in the worst. And he says as follows. I know bepidyon, how is it over? What if someone says, you know what, I don't want to give the pidyon shvuyin, let them rot in jail? They're over the following. Not one avera, but multiple. Losamets es levavcha, velosikvotsit yodacha. Which is a common, a common, uh, a more common general Prohibition. If someone's not give tzedakah, someone refuses to give tzedakah, then they're over hardening their heart and not stretching out their hand. Standing upon your brother's blood, as, in the, as we discussed in Martin Hedrin, if you see someone drowning and you have the means to save them, and you don't, you're standing on their blood. You should not rule ruthlessly over them, as you can control, uh, you can control and, 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 and save them, and you're basically saying, I, I have the power to help you and I'm not. Ubatul mitzvah is also a positive commanding of Hosea Tiftah as Yadacha, the commandment to stretch out your hand and to open your hand and give. Uh, that you, uh, we, if we can help someone live with you, as in you're able to support someone, you do it. 
says the Rambam, you're not in a good place. There are multiple prohibitions and mitzvahs asses, you are, you are over. You are, you are transgressing when you don't help redeem someone from jail. The There's no greater mitzvah than redeeming a captive. No greater mitzvah than redeeming a captive. In fact, the Gemara Megillah says, Gemara Megillah says as follows, a Sefer Torah, a Sefer Torah is the holiest object we have. We do not just sell a Sefer Torah. It's very complicated to sell a Sefer Torah. However, says the Gemara, a mocher sefer Torah er lelimo Torah v'lisa isha. There are three reasons we sell a sefer Torah. Either you sell a sefer Torah in order to get money to buy a new one, let's say it's falling apart, or to learn Torah, because again, Torah is the most important value. So in order to learn Torah, you can sell a sefer Torah to facilitate you learning Torah. And lastly, v'lisa isha to get married. Again, such an important mitzvah. Other than that, we do not sell a sefer Torah. Says the Tosfos. Turn to the next page. Tosfos is source number three in Baba Basra Daf Ches. One minute. What about Pidyon Shvuyin? If Pidyon Shvuyin is such an, such an important value, it's such an important mitzvah. So if you can sell a Sefer Torah to get married, you can sell a Sefer Torah to learn Torah. What about Pidyon Shvuyin, which is God will make all call mitzvahs? What was Lush in the Rambam? Ain mitzvah, Godolo ki Pidyon Shvuyin. Says Tosfos. Why is it not in that list in Megillah? It's so obvious. It's so obvious that Pidyon Shvuyin is so important, a paramount value. The lowest strip limit, and we didn't even have to write it. Yeah. But wouldn't it be that everybody, who is responsible for um, redeeming somebody from prison? Is everyone. all of Nesail? Everyone. So who you sign the Sefer Torah to? Uh, who wouldn't already be, be required to help you? Maybe the, the Museum of Archaeological History. I don't know. Okay. And would all, would all this still count in today's modern jails where not so clear so not, not so clear but i'll tell you what will count in today's jails and that's as follows next source ready for this so in a good question we live in a society where there's a just in our country in america we've you know as broken as the prison system may be it's still a more just system and people sometimes do the wrong thing and end up in jail so does pity and split apply nowadays and the answer is yes in july 1968 an ll airliner was hijacked to algeria algeria the 12 Israeli crewmen and pastors were exchanged for 16 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. The Israeli government later denied that there had been a deal. As they, as what did they say? We cannot comment on this matter. On December 7th, 1969, two Israeli citizens were on plane, whose planes were hijacked to Damascus, and two Israeli pilots, Gila Ram and Nisim Ashkenazi, who were shot down over the Suez Canal in the War of Attrition, were exchanged for 71 Egyptian and Syrian prisoners held in Israel. So yes, we still have terrorists, and we still have situations. Gilad Shalit, where we have prisoners who have to be redeemed. And the question is as follows. How about and, if you said bodies? Would you say the same applies to bodies of the soldiers? I don't know if it's Peter Shvuya, but again, that's, that there, there, there are broader issues at play here. Yeah. Does the nature of the incarceration change the ruling? That's what Ibra's question was. Well, no, I was stepping on that. For example, you mentioned that those days they were kept in uh, dank times or whatever, but that isn't entirely true. Prisoners of high social status or important prisoners were actually kept in the primary house with the well, but like, like the Maharami Rutenberg and lived a life like luxury, just they couldn't leave and had no control of their own schedule and things like that. The worst part about being in prisoner prison, according to a prisoner I spoke to, was having no control of your own schedule. What it means to be a man, to be and I'm a man, I mean general, the mankind is that we have freedom. <laughs> that's, that's one of our defining features. To to, to uh, Take yeah, away freedom from someone. We're not talking about somebody who's hungry. We're not talking about somebody Again, but taking away freedom from someone, I think that this, Peter Shvoyd really gets down to taking away someone's freedom is 
the worst deprivation one could do for someone. That's why slavery. To some, to some extent, I would, think, I would think, yes, surely Robert Woodberg thought he would, no one brought up, oh, because he was sitting there in prison, prison and he had access to his books, so no, he didn't What's brought up, as we'll see, is maybe, are we allowed to exchange books? Here's the question. The question, the more modern question, which, was, which a lot of the posts started discussing in 1970 or so, was there were a series of hijackings in Israel, where Israelis were kidnapped. We know in Tavi, which happened in, uh, what was it, 76, but even prior to that, and the question is, can you redeem them? And in our case, they weren't asking for money, but they were asking for the, for the freedom of terrorists and murderers. So what everyone wants to deal with are as follows. Now, I'll actually, we'll turn to Rehuda Gershuni, known as the, the Grudden Eloi, who was a Talmud, Talmud of some of the greatest Lithuanian rabbis, who then went to Israel, became a Talmud of Cook. And he says as follows. He writes this in 1970 in Hadarom. Hadarom is the RCA's journal. This is source number four. The following situation has arisen over the past couple of years. If you go to Wikipedia, by the way, they list up all the different hijackings and kidnappings that took place leading up to this. It's a machalum the Arab terrorist. What they want us to do is create a pressure situation which coerces the, the state of Israel to free terrorists. And in order to do that, they are basically creating this exchange. And the state of Israel says, our policy is, we do not negotiate with terrorists. We're not playing into this cycle because we know exactly what's going to happen, which is why if you look at that for first source, there may have been an exchange, but it was not public. We want to, because I want to figure out, is this permitted? And again, this question again came up after the Gilad Shalit deal. We had a thousand terrorists released from one person. The question is twofold. Again, similar to Maram's question, where with, by the Marami Rutenberg, it was, if you redeem me for two, 22, uh, 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 22,000 crowns. So then it's just going to encourage people to kidnap more rabbis. So here too, if you redeem these prisoners, you redeem Gilad Shalit, you're going to encourage the kidnapping of more soldiers in order to free more terrorists. Especially when it's such, it's so outrageously disproportionate. He says as follows. Um, number two in the question we're not going to deal with is as follows. When you, if you give money to someone, so the money is, you know, okay, so you gave the person money. Here, it's different. Yeah, perhaps Gilad Shalit, or whoever that, ter- that, that, that soldier or citizen is, they may be in Pekuach Nefesh. Any moment, they can get shot by the terrorists. However, old prop is that there's another variable. By freeing and saving the lives of the Israelim, what are you doing? You're freeing terrorists, people with blood on their hands. Essentially what you're doing is you're releasing killers on the street. So yes, immediately right now, this terrorist, this, excuse me, citizen or soldier may now, may now no longer be in a place where their life is in danger, but you've essentially released someone with blood on their hands who's probably, and we've seen it, statistics show us, is going to go and engage in acts of terror, and essentially you're endangering more Jews. A very, very fair and heavy question. This is why I don't want to be prime minister. You know, this is, these are real questions. You have a family. It's called the, I think it's called the, the prime minister prisoner syndrome. When the family gets up there and they talk about their, their child, 
They talk about the, first, the, the kid, and they're, they're protesting. And you're looking at this family, you see the father in the eyes, the mother in their eyes, and you realize the pain they're going through, but you also realize in the future what that can bring. So these are the two questions. Question number one is, when you create this disproportionate response of freeing so many terrorists for one person, it encourages the cycle. And number two, you're freeing terrorists. I want to talk about number one today, because it's really the question of the Maharam. So it's not a new question. As they say, everything can be found in the Gemara, or almost everything can be found in the Gemara. The Gemara and Gideon says as follows. Before I begin, anyone have any comments? We all good? One, two, three. Okay. We do not redeem captives for more than their worth. Because of Tikkun Olam, this is exhausting the Gemara, talks a lot about this concept of Tikkun Olam, things we did and enacted in order to ensure that there was a, the betterment of society. One of them may or may not be Prisbal. We don't help the, cap, the captives escape in order because of Tikkun Olam. Not because of Tikkun Olam, because of the betterment of the cap of the captives. Meaning, the concern there was if you help a cap, if you help someone escape from jail or escape from captivity, you're just going to make it the next time there are people captured. They're just going to be watching them more and oppress them more. What does it mean Tikkun Olam? What do, what's the Tikkun Olam here? What's the betterment of society we're trying to accomplish? Why are we afraid to redeem someone for more than they're worth? Says the Gemara Ibai I'm not sure. Gemara doesn't know what does it mean Tikkun Olam. It's a bit of an amorphous term. Either you're going to drain the communal money. Again, there's only a finite amount of money. And if every time someone's captured, you redeem them for this outrageous sum, very quickly the, the community is going to run out of money. So either it's because of that, it's just not, it's not going to be financially feasible to, to live up to this, and that's going to create a crisis. Or it's because of what we've been saying the whole time. We're concerned if you redeem someone for more than they're worth, they're just going to do it again and do it again and do it again. Says Rashi, oh Dilma, and therefore what's enough meaning between the two? Let's say the guy's really, really wealthy. Let's say he's really, really wealthy. So if the concern is draining the money of the community, so here, I have some concern because he can pay it off. But if the concern is, no, you're going to reinforce the cycle, so then you can't do it as well. Any comments, questions, observations? Okay. Says the Shulchan Aruch, this brought the Lehalacha. Do not redeem a captive for more than they are worth. And why not? Why not? But they take an Olam. So, because of taking Olam, fine. So, because a person, so a person does not, so, so a person does not, we don't reinforce the cycle of them kidnapping and then asking for more than the person's worth. A person can redeem himself. We redeem a Talmud Chacham. However, a Talmud Chacham, we do redeem because of their value exceeds the more than a common person. Yes, comments. How, how, how do you determine a person's worth? Like, so, that, so, so there... Nobody <laughs> assess their value like you would a piece of property. We do, though. You know, you go to the courts now, uh, if, you know, you, in New York State, yeah, yeah, if you I kill mean, someone, yeah, there's only a... Of damages, if, if somebody no. hurt, then how much if, wages... Did if you damage someone, you can sue something. for $100 million. If someone kills someone inadvertently, there's, a, there's only a limited amount of money you can get in the state. Well, the state allows you to take from someone else. It's a 1.7 now. But you, you said if in the case of a Talmud Chacham, what about, I think it was last year, you only started studying when he was like 
important. So that's what he says also. Or like if you're, 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 other, you're, you're a Talmud Charif. You're someone who they see up potentially from a Talmud Chacham. But if you... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. How could you argue that the reason... Uh, I understand arguing that the escalation of, um, of the expense of an individual <clears throat> captive, um, not, pay, not paying more than um, what we claim a person's worth, but I don't understand how how it would be the escalation of them taking more captives, because not take not giving them more than a person's worth, you're still giving it to them. They're still they're still going to keep wanting that money. Correct, but if you so it doesn't it doesn't really change the equation if you're not escalating the quantity of money. No, but I think it does when they, they, they recognize, oh, this community over here, you know. Also, remember, we're talking about when they had slaves, everyone had a value. But it, it, um, when you, um, if, they, if they know we can get this outrageous amount of money, it's worth going to kidnapping. Well, what about yeah, when they, they're, 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 they're managed to? It's still a slave trade. No, yeah, it definitely, it still, it still does, but I think <laughs> it's still, again, Peter Choi is still important. You have to, you have to draw a line somewhere. What about when you're exchanging, like here, reference to exchanging prisoners? How do you put the value of two Israelis against... Uh, well, we let, that, we, we let them put the value on it, and they clearly think uh, their people are not worth a lot of money. Again, I don't, I don't want to get into the, 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 the political decision. I'm just, I, want, I only brought up the halakha perspective, but again, there are a lot of considerations that go in there, and on both sides, politically and halakhically, What's permitted, what's not permitted? It's a tragic question, but the idea I want to bring out there was what one of the questions the poets can talk about, similar to Marab's question, is, you know, if let's say they, the the Arabs they knew they can only get one, it was one for one, so maybe they won't engage in the risk of you know, kidnapping someone versus here, and they know they can free a thousand people, so it's worth the risk. You know that that's also part of it. The again, as always, running out of time, so I want to I'm going to do this next source outside the Radvas. Ask the following question. He says, it's Maisim Yom. We see all the time, Jewish prisoners were redeemed for way more than they were worth, which is against the Shulchan Aruch, which is against his Mishnah. He wants to know why. And he gives a couple of reasons. He says, first of all, maybe if, if, maybe that everyone's redeemed for more than they're worth. That's kind of in, uh, Yara's point. That it's very, I mean, buying and selling a slave is very different than when you're already engaging in some sort of you know, illegal activity of kidnapping someone, and therefore anyone, in the, it's not a particular Jewish problem, so they just happen to get a Jew. And then he says, it, he, then he essentially says, and this is my, kind of my read of it, so at the end of the day, like, what can you do? We're B'nai Avraham, as we saw last week, and that the tshuva from, uh, from the Rambam, we're, we're Rachmanim, we just have so we, we just feel so bad. And we, we just, what, what can we do about it? We feel so bad, we have Rachmanas, or people of Chesed, and he gives like four reasons why it should be permitted and kind of says, like, I know it doesn't really work, but ultimately, you know, you just, we just have Rachmanus. Again, you can ask the question, you know, Rachmanus in the wrong areas, as the Mishnah Pirkei says, ends up being the opposite of Rachmanus. But he kind of says, like, what can you do? When you see someone else in pain, someone in so much pain, you just, you, you want to you help. Which I think this is a fascinating, fascinating case of what we call, you know, a halachic flexibility, where there's a clear halacha, and he kind of like, we just couldn't, we couldn't give up to it. We wanted to help. We want it to help. Well, there are, there are other factors, too. It's not just, I mean, if, if the person you're exchanging or the one you're trying to redeem is, is a father with four kids at home. And, and yeah, but the ultimate, ultimately... Or, the or he's a single guy who he works for a living and he helps the community. How do you... Yes, obviously the, the Gemara and Harius discusses all that. But again, I think part of it is, like, as tragic as it is, when you have an individual, because every person is their own world, right? The Rav pointed out, every person... 
I mean, we know what it rains against you. I mean, the Rub tell us. The Rub said that when the, the Gemara tells every person a world to himself, it's because when a person dies, you lose a world. You lose a perspective. You lose the, yeah. The other, <clears throat> the other approach is in Tebbi. Is that anywhere in his thinking and analysis instead of pain? Well, that's yeah, for sure. If that's the option, if the Israelis knew they can they can drop the commandos and the commandos into there and do it, I'm sure they would do it. But that's not always feasible. No, of course not. We know what happened with you know with Nachman, Like, and again, here, can you say can you can you can you spring someone from jail? My guess, I mean, the Jews were not in that position, the position of power to do so. That's one of the one one of the what we quoted the Rav. The Rav he talks about the miracles of the state of Israel. We talked in. What do you say? Yes, he says in called Dodi Dofek that Hashem gave us six knocks Talk about the, the, in the miracle of the state of Israel. One of them is a Jew knows wherever they live in the world. They can be living in Ukraine right now under fire, but we, li we live in a world where a Jew knows in a moment's notice. Israel can be in there and take them out and put them in Israel. So you know, never in the history of the world, if a Jew was in a country that was being invaded and they knew even if they were a target, that was it. Like they were, Their lives are in, are, are in jeopardy. And now like you have all, all these Jews in Ukraine, which can be, they can be out tomorrow. They already offered to leave. Some of them didn't leave. Not sure why. That's, I don't know. But uh, that's part of the danger of taking a Jewish hostage. That they, now everybody knows that Israel. The rub points out as well. The rub points out Jewish blood isn't cheap. You want to kill Jews in Munich? We'll be there and we'll hunt you down. Jewish blood is not cheap. But yeah, that, that's we'll talk about that maybe once about this year. Okay, so that was the gist of just the halacha question. Are you allowed to redeem people? The, what, we're, what we're trying to weigh here is the value of, a, of an individual versus essentially what's going to be what the cost it's going to be to the tzibor, to the congregation, in terms of either reinforcing the cycle or, or it's going to deplete the source in the Shulchan Aruch you cannot do so. Says the Yom Shalom of Shlomo Luria. Let me tell you something. What happened? Shema'atiya Maharami Rutenberg. I heard about the Heilige Maharami Rutenberg. Shetofas in Migdal Agazheim. Agizheim. He was taken into the, the castle in Agizheim, some city. Kamashanim. Vashar Tobi Minakilo Sach Godol and the leader requested or demanded a huge ransom. Vakilos wrote who wrote Liftos. And the people said we want to, we want it, we want to, we will pay. We'll collect the money and pay. The Rutenberg said, We don't redeem captives for more than they're worth. I will sit in jail and sacrifice essentially my freedom. Um, and then he goes on to say, I don't understand you, the Talmud Chacham. Um, and he, if he's Talmud Chacham, he should have redeemed himself. Okay, fine. The point is, this is one of the main sources we have for the Rabbi Rutenberg. What happens? What happens? He doesn't want to be redeemed. As he pointed out, a man by the name of Alexander Suskin ben Shlomo Zalman Winfra, he comes along after the Rabbi Rutenberg. He's been dead for a, a number of years, and it, some sources say he gave up his entire fortune to redeem the Maharam on the condition he was buried next to him in the cemetery. Burial rites was, they know, the Hever Kedisha in the, in, the, in the Middle Ages was one of the strongest chevras, the strongest committees, because they essentially determined where you're buried. And if you did not, you know, the biggest threat one can give to someone is, we're not going to bury you in the Jewish cemetery. Or we're buried in part of the cemetery where the sinners are buried. So burial rites was a very, very strong um, way of enforcing a lot of things. Where you're buried connoted a lot about your stature. <laughs> he is buried next to the Gadol Adar, next to the Marani Wittenberg. Who is this Alexander? So I found a fascinating theory. This theory is put forth by Ephraim Steiner, a professor in, in uh, I think, the University of the Negev. He says if you scour the entire writings of Mirami Rutenberg, all his letters, you find the name Alexander, which is an uncommon name in the Middle Ages. You find the name once in all the letters of Mirami Rutenberg. And here is the question. 
The question was as follows. A person by the name of Alexander hired a bunch of ruffians, hired a bunch of hooligans to shake down, essentially, one of his creditors, to, to, to scare them, to make them pay up. And instead of doing so, they killed this other Jew. So a bunch of, he hires a bunch of non-Jews to shake down his creditor, who's a Jew, and instead of doing so, they killed him. And the guy feels terrible. And he comes to the Rami Rudberg and goes, what should I do? And the Rami Rudberg is livid. And he essentially says over the course of the tshuva, you, it wasn't just that you hired someone that did something, you are directly responsible for the murder of this Jew. I'm very bitter. Source 10, what can I say to you? This terrible, bitter thing that took place. Because I don't even know what to tell you that you can do to find atonement. You murdered someone. It wasn't you hired someone, they took it, they went too far. You set the ball, the, the ball in motion. You are the, directly responsible for the murder of this Jew. And worse, this is worse than a Jew appointing another Jew. This is worse than he says. The eighth finally goes on, and he um, talk about halakhically why, why even though he didn't directly kill him, it's still considered to be directly killed him. And he ends off saying, "I really," he says, "you should be fasting, you should, um, you should be whipped." Basically ends off and he says, you should be, you know, you're in bad shape, you have to do a lot to get atonement, you should be whipped, you should fast, etc. This man, Alexander, shows up one time in the entire corpus of Marmar Rittenberg. The only other time we find the word Alexander is the tombstone next to, next to Marmar Rittenberg. And the tombstone says as follows. And I brought, this is the epitaph in the tombstone. This tombstone was erected and carved near the head of the benefactor, Rabbi Alexander, son of Rabbi Shlomo, who passed away the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur. On Thursday, was buried in 11th of Tishrei, 68 of the 6th millennium, and who dared presume in his heart, and God delivered into his hand a great deed to redeem our teacher, a mayor, son of Rabbi Baruch, then from the captivity in which he was incarcerated for several years, posthumously until the benefactor was willingly rede to redeem him. And he therefore received the opportunity to be buried on his right side. May be the will that he will be have him seated on the side in the garden among the eternal righteous. Amen, amen, selah. So the tombstone basically spells out. Here's this guy, Alexander, who, who, who dared to presume in his heart. And God delivered him into his hand a great deed. And he redeemed Miranda Rutenberg. Says Effie Steiner a couple things. One is, this, other than the tombstone, if you look through all the documents and the way that uh, the, they had these Pincus Aquilos, they had these documents, each, each community had these documents just about what takes place in the community and the history books of the community. Not once do we find this guy, Alexander, showing up doing this great act. You would assume, you would assume, if someone did such a great act, they redeemed the body of the leading teacher of that generation, it'd be recorded in the history books and no one records it. No one records it. And then he said there's something else very interesting. You see the italicized lines. It's kind of funny. Dared presume in his heart, and God delivered into his hand. He said, those are actually psukim. Those are psukim. Why these psukim? So if you look, one's actually from Esther. Esther Zion 5. Esther says to Esther HaMalka, this is the, the, the penultimate, or the ultimate, the, the apex, the, 
This is the height of the story, right? Everything in the story of Megillah has led up to this. From Mordechai, not bowing down to Haman. And Haman saying, what should we do? And going to Achishverosh in the middle of the night. And then Achishverosh forcing him to allow him to build, the, to build the gallows. And then having him walk Mordechai. And then the meal. And the second meal. And everyone fasted for three days. And we get to that line. Me, who's that? Who, who is this terrible person who wants to kill my wife? Asher Malo Libo Lasso's Cain, who has dared to presume in his heart. The epitaph on the tombstone of Alexandria is quoting the line, the opposite story of when a of when a non-Jew wants to kill a Jew. And they and, and Hashem saves them. It's quoting the basically the line about Akashvera saying, Who is the who is this killer? Who is the killer who wants to kill you? And that's on the epitaph. And it gets one more, take it one further. And where is God delivered into his hand a great deed? Our Valkore, where is that from? What, what, what Pasik? Murderer. Murderer. Someone who murders someone inadvertently, they go to the they go to the Arimikla. And the Lush of the Pasik, the language of the Pasik is God delivered into his hand. Or delivered into his hands. The only other time this word the only time this word shows up in all of Tanakh. Is talking about the, the person who kills someone inadvertently. Someone who kills someone inadvertently. And that's the two verses they chose to use on his tombstone. Almost like they were trying to allude to it. Here's a guy, you know why he redeemed the great Marami Rutenberg? This was his penitence. This was his atonement. That he gave up his entire fortune in order to redeem the Maharam. Yes, we're not going to mention it in our, our, in our history books. But on his epitaph, we'll mention it and we'll allude to the fact why did he do it? Again, here is Haman. Akashvari saying, who is this terrible person? And here's the person who killed someone inadvertently. Quoting those two psukhmen, says Professor Steiner's article. Is it possible that this, in fact, a post-hominous exchange of favors and meritorious acts was Winton, in effect, trying to buy his acceptance back into the Jewish society by redeeming the remains of the man who had shunned him? I suggest that the possibility that Alexander Winton of Frankfurt, who redeemed Mayor's body and had him properly buried and Alexander, the convicted murderer from Mayor's response, are one and the same. The meritorious act of redeeming the body of the deceased master was one part of his story, and another part was indicated in his epitaph, which is worded to show that despite his crime, he had proven his true repentance and earned the privilege of being buried next to the great rabbi. The fact that not everyone accepted this would explain the absence of any record of his admiral deed in the Murbacher, which is the memorial books. So although dead men tell no tales, sometimes the clues they leave behind, enigmatic as they may be, enable a new possible reading and another unique way of interpreting an ancient story. And I thought that was fascinating. That here is a man who achieved his atonement, achieved his penitence, by redeeming the person who essentially shunned him and put him in heaven. And that is the mystery. And I think what's very cool about the, final, I guess the final story of Robert Rudenberg, a man who really left an indelible mark on our halakha. So many halachos can be traced back to him, who wrote Tosfos. You open up multiple mesechlis, and he, he writes there. A man who transformed our community structure and how we, our communities are operating. A man who helped us really and guided us in terms of how to be a, a unique society, a smaller society within the larger society, and a man whose life ended, whose life ended in prison, and ultimately the final chapter was redeemed by the person who himself had shunned multiple years earlier, many years earlier, for having murdered, and now the person reached atonement. With that, I wish you a wonderful week.